Welcome back to Sound Up Governance. Heading into the end of 2022, I realized that I have so much cool and unused material from the first four months of the podcast, and it wasn't unused because it wasn't awesome. To give you a sense of how I make the Sound Up Governance sausage, each interview is at least 45 minutes, which already gives me way more material than I need for an episode. Before I start the interview, I already have an idea of what I want the narrative flow of the episode to look like. Invariably, the conversations go on brilliant tangents that just don't fit the narrative. So this episode is like a collection of treasures that I've gathered along the way from all the brilliant people I've spoken with. Let's start with Lieutenant Colonel Jamal Evans of the U.S. Marine Corps. Listening to Jamal, I wondered how a super disciplined and hierarchical organization like the Marines would deal with ultra high potential superstars. Here's what he told me. I can't speak for every Marine uh, throughout history or throughout the organization, but I will say my approach to it is everybody has responsibility and everybody deserves an opportunity. And if you if you wind up focusing on one individual because they are outstanding in what they do, there are two negative possibilities with that. First is overburdening that individual. The second is ostracizing that person's peers. So when you do that, you're saying, well, this this is my my number one person. This is my superstar. And you're not giving opportunities or responsibilities to your other people. That's how you can quickly build resentment in an organization. Because you have one person that's doing all the work, and it's, it gets even worse if they're not recognized and acknowledged. They're doing all the work, and you have other people who want the opportunities, but for some reason, they're not trusted. With so this is one thing that I love about being in the Marine Corps. If I look at your collar and I know where you work, I know that you're supposed to be able to do a function. So you can be great. You can be mediocre, you can be subpar, but if I look at your billet where you're assigned and I know that that's your function, you're getting the task. <laughs> and it's on senior leaders to eliminate the fear of what could happen if you don't give it to your best person. I worked with a, with a, uh, he was a master sergeant at the time. We had a young Marine, junior enlisted Marine, who was a Lance Corporal, who was extremely smart in the budget and accounting system. And he wanted to deploy somewhere. He had never deployed since he'd been in the office. And that was in an area where we did a lot of deployments. So the, the chief, the master sergeant came to me and he said, you know, we need to deploy him. I said, got it. How are we on, on backup when he leaves? Because he's doing a lot of stuff. And the chief looked at me and he said, sir, we are not one deep. I said, and if we are one deep, we're going to find out because I think, <laughs> we need, I think we need to deploy him. So I said, can, I said, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And we got him out on a deployment. And guess what? The unit worked just fine. And we had two Marines who had not really had their had their moment uh, in the limelight, so to speak, kind of flying under the radar, who were re required to step up. They stepped up in 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 great manner. So that is how you you get around the this is my superstar, this is my rock star, and and it happens in in every organization. 
But it's again, once again, on that senior leader to see that and say, okay, yes, this person is highly dependable. Yes, this person is highly capable. But these other people need an opportunity. And I want to see how many of them can perform close to this other one. Speaking of multiple people vying for opportunity and influence, I asked Professor Tiziana Cacharo about one of my favorite idiosyncrasies of boards of directors, the fact that every director comes into the room with just one vote and no real authority on their own, making them equals in a way. I did this interview months and months before the launch of Ground Up Governance, back when I thought I might just write a book instead. Tiziana is so brilliant. I really love her response here. I would say that it is not the case that every director has equal power. I would say that every director has equal authority, but not equal power, because they all formally get to participate in a decision of the board in equal ways. So they all have an equal amount of pressure they can put on the decision-making of the board. But their actual power, which is broader than authority, comes from whether they control resources that other board members value. And therefore, they give me, as one of those board members, extra leeway, extra influence. So suppose I want the board to decide to make a certain move. And not everybody on the board kind of likes that idea. And if they don't like it, it's going to be very hard for me to get there and, and make that move. What I can do is gain an understanding of what the other board members want, need, desire. And if I get to access those resources, and again, there could be material resources. It could be that I know that you really, really, really want to connect with a certain company for whatever purpose you have in your brain. And I happen to have a way to help you do that. That's something you want that has nothing to do with your roles on the board. And this is where you see how easily the interests of the board members can become complicated and, and almost disconnected from the ultimate purpose of the board on, or in a formal uh, understanding of that purpose. So, but if I understand, all the things that you want as my fellow board member, I can dangle those resources in front of you uh, to, to persuade you that actually coming on board with the move I want the board to make is actually a good idea because in exchange for that, I will give you something that you have at heart. And uh, it, it's also um, ethically potentially treacherous territory very quickly because the interest that the people bring to uh, the board as directors are varied and sometimes they're conflicting and sometimes are profoundly disconnected from the mission of the board. But they are there, they are being, they are in the action and they are part of who has power and who does not in the board, even though formally they all look the same. You remember Judith Athide, who went from teaching in Brandon, Manitoba, to being one of Canada's most in-demand corporate directors? Well, I asked her a bit about that journey because, as you'll hear me say in a second, she was making it sound a bit too easy. 
So you made it sound easy, this like starting where you started and then ending up as this like superstar director. But I, I suspect it wasn't so much of a straight line. How, how did that even happen? So you, you started in this situation where you were, you were eager to learn, you, you understood you didn't know what you were doing, you went out and learned some stuff. But how did that really get you from there to being where you are now? Because you're, you're kind of a hot commodity. <laughs> Matt, I wouldn't say I'm a hot commodity. Let's start with that. I would not use the words a hot commodity. I am a believer that not every director is right for every organization all the time. I'm, I'm very thoughtful about it. So, so I would say that when I finished the DEP program, it, it took a lot of networking it mm. took a lot of conversations of laying the seeds with with my colleagues and, and the community to say, I'm interested. Here are the skill sets that I have. Here are the skill sets I don't have. So here's where I can contribute. And it wasn't overnight. I mean, when you think about my first for-profit large organization, Accenture, it was 2003. We're now mm. 19 years later. Mm -hmm. My first board was 1989. We're mm -hmm. now... 33, 34 years later. So it, it hasn't been high velocity. It, it yeah. has been about, you know, investing, learning, growing, and, and spending my time paying my, you know, paying my dues and contributing throughout private, public, crown, not-for-profit. And I continue to do that. The other thing is I would say I, I like to be thoughtful about the organizations that I contribute to. Part of it is a portfolio approach so that I can bring value to different organizations, different sectors, and take mm -hmm. value from them to the next mm -hmm. sector. Part of it is um, obviously having the time and having the schedule that allows it. And part of it is getting really comfortable with the chairs of the boards and the chairs of the committee. I think that's right. really important that I, I can work with them. And as, as one of my mentors said to me 20 years ago, he said, you think it is hard to get onto a board. Let me assure you, it is much, much more difficult to get off a board. So <laughs> be very careful when you say yes, because it's very hard to say I need to exit. And, and so I've always kept that in mind. When I look at an opportunity, I have to be able to commit to working through the, the good times and the less good times with the board as a whole. So that, that having a relationship with my fellow board members, having trust in them, they in me, and, and developing a relationship where we don't agree all the time, but we have the common objective of doing what's the right thing for the organization and stakeholders is really important. Okay, so that was clearly not as easy as it originally sounded. Judith is now realizing the results of over 30 years of investment of time, talent, training, and, well, general awesomeness. During my interview with Andrew Escobar for episode five, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to ask a young corporate director about his perspectives on ESG, a commonly used initialism that stands for environment, social, and governance. Here's what he had to say. All of all of those three are, are so very important, right? In 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 my board work, uh, the environment, society, or social responsibility, um, governance. 
But I tend to focus on the governance piece because that's, you know, what my role is as, as a board member. Like I'm, I'm, I'm deeply engaged in the governance of, of one organization and hopefully uh, many others throughout my career. While all three of those are important and critical, I think governance is that first piece to solve though. I don't think that you can tackle the E and the S without first tackling the G. The problems that we're trying to solve, the opportunities that are in front of us within, within our environmental responsibility, our social responsibility are huge, right? How do you though, as an organization, even begin to grapple with them if you haven't solved governance? So that to me is my focus. I recognize that, the, that the first and foremost, like we have a climate catastrophe on our hands. What are we doing to solve for that? Society is not right, right? There's, there's a, there, there is so much we, more we can do. But I know that we need to have broad solutions to these things and that, and that without governance, we cannot begin to solve for them. So that is where I, I focus. Incidentally, Andrew and I are pretty well aligned here. When I use the term ESG, I typically think of it as the G of E and S, or the governance of environmental and social factors. I shared that definition with Lisa Aldridge, who's an ESG guru, back when we spoke for episode three. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, uh, that is a good question. So, I mean, I'm not sure if I would use ESG if I were to come up with it and and this is not me just being sneaky but i would probably say non-financial performance measurement right because so i like the g of es that 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 makes sense but really e s and g are just like arbitrary buckets of is it about you know is it about the natural world is it about the people or is it about the quality of the ethics and the decision making and and all that together and and you should be performing well in all of those things and it's not you know, return on capital employed as a measurement, for example, right? But there's a whole bunch of really cool things in there that are, a lot of it is maybe the squishy stuff. If you take S, for example, I'm sure you could do the double click and find things like, you know, engagement and all these things that used to be squishy, but now we've got the ability to, go, to, to, do, the, to do the research and the data on it. It's like, now you can find really cool stuff. Like George Seraphim did that work with his group where it's like with engagement, not only if you, not only do you find, a statistically significant performance improvement when you have high engagement defined as I think it's sort of like the, the degree to which the person is aligned with this is this is world at work I think they did like some ungodly amount of crunching of the of the data so not only if the person is sort of aligned with the purpose of the organization and feels like they have they're engaged with it um, they did data cuts on it and it was like there was a bigger statistical outperformance the more down in the, to use a hierarchy, the more it was sort of, the more that marinated in the company sort of down to the, the more junior levels in the front line. And, you know, you and I go, duh, of course, right? Like culture is actually a strategic asset. And that's maybe where I start to pull the whole sort of ESG back towards, you know, material and decision useful and, and material to like the performance of the company. Now, I also come at it from a, maybe it's a bit of a Pollyanna place where I look at sort of, there's, there's this, um, I'm going all over the place, but you're just going to have to live with it. But Mark Carney's recent book values, he uses an infographic that he, I think adapted from impact 
Institute or something. And it's basically the spectrum of capital. And if you start all the way on the left-hand side, which is the wrong side, it's like classic capitalism, you know, Milton Friedman, 1970, you know, business of business is business. That's what some of this um, anti-woke stuff, you know, strive capital and all of this, you know, we've lost the plot. It's whatever. That's that kind of a use of capital whereby you're not really worried about externalities. It's okay if the the well side or the mind side or the, you know, it looks like Mordor or whatever, right? You're just going to make it back and get it. And then on the very other end of the spectrum is philanthropy. So from the optic of capital investment, you're losing it all on purpose, but you're losing it all. And then you can kind of move across that. So, you know, you go, you go just to the right of Milton Friedman, profit at all costs, then you start to get into things like, well, maybe we should worry about some of these so-called ESG things in terms of risk or costs. So let's switch to LEDs. You know, let's not poison the water of the village we're trying to operate in. I'm being kind of crass, but you get the point. Um, then you can get into, and it gets really interesting because as you go over that, if you as you sort of come over on that spectrum, I think that we're at a spot where you can, and I really believe this, we're at a spot now where there's a lot of businesses that can do things that enhance, be it the natural world or social construct, et cetera, and make a market competitive return on a market competitive timeframe. Right. And I mean, there's a bunch of things that are converging there. There's the demographic trend. I think it's what 60% of workers under 35 want a business to be around for social reasons over profit. I don't think profit is unnecessary. I mean, that's it's the first, it's the first ingredient in sustainability because if you're not around the next year, it's a bit of a pyrrhic victory, right? But there's also just these giant problems that need to have a lot of money thrown at them. To wrap up the year, let's go back to the dumpling gang. Oh, and I can't skip this chance to use the super cheesy dumpling theme song. Hold on. It's basically like I rewrote the Beverly Hills 90210 theme song or something. So dumb. Anyway, if you're not familiar with the Dumpling Gang, go back to the October 21st post on Ground Up Governance and have a listen. I love this part of our conversation where we talked about how organizations fail when it comes to inclusion. I shared a bit of a ham-fisted example, which my homie Mary Lee picked up and scored a touchdown or whatever sports metaphor you like. If you brought a blind person into your group because it's something that we can all kind of imagine if we can visualize what it could be like to be blind you wouldn't just say welcome to the group you sort it out right we would ask some questions and try to understand it and do our best even if we were clumsy at it to create conditions where they can participate I, and I, I try to, and I don't, I'm not saying I understand this, but I think it's important to assume every single person in any group needs that type of attention, not because they're blind, but because they've got something that makes it difficult for them to feel engaged and included and optimized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I would say so, because I don't, if you take that example and apply it to a marginalized or 
in in, in or invisible disabilities right? Invis- yeah perfect like any of those situations or just any situation that's in the workplace we don't take time to do mm-hmm. any of that in, instead we tell individuals that they need to fit in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not directly inadvertently because then we give power to certain people we give influence to like you start seeing how decisions are made and hence why you observe the you observe the environment and then you decide the people sit in certain levels um Mm -hmm. in the sandwich and then things are done as always (laughs) in in a certain way i think at least in my experience like yeah people don't stop and ask the questions or pause to ask somebody what their opinions are, if they haven't smoke, spoken up at any any last three meetings, any of those things are not taken into, I think, yeah. practice to, for, you know, for folks to even develop their own style of power influence. Yeah, there's sort of unspoken reinforcement of the status quo that mm-hmm. people don't question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, like, expecting people to operate. I think it's, like, expecting folks to operate. And I always feel like the biggest group that I always go back to are those that, at least what I've observed, I don't, I wouldn't put myself in the back of it, but essentially working professionals that have really great degrees that come to Canada, immigrate to Canada, and are trying to find their selves here, I find that group is often... um, forced to figure out quickly in the first three years either fit in or get out kind of feelings at workplaces because I've seen it and it's just like and if we do say like we make room for all different folks like it's hard it's hard I just don't see it happening as often um or done well or just you know provided there's a really big we we want everyone to fit in as long as Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, that's a great way to say it's like you're doing a great job, but then it's all behind the scenes. But you can improve on all these things. It's like what we're expecting. But so it is telling somebody what they came into the office wearing is not good enough. Who the experiences that they care is not good enough because here's everything else we expect if you want to like rise to the top. So Mm -hmm. yeah. So I do see that in what you describe about if it's conscious. I, I do believe it's conscious when you're a visible minority. At least, I guess, in my experience, yeah, it's conscious because even if you say it's unconscious, it's already built into my subconscious at this point for working so long. Like, it's already built in. You already, you, you know. And you know what? The thing that Mary is describing is precisely why I believe a change, a movement even, is overdue in corporate governance. Organizational decision-making is not a function where we can afford to want people to fit in as long as, or where what someone wears isn't good enough, or where conformity to some absurd set of norms is what we should strive for. So. Thanks to all the brilliant people who joined me on Sound Up Governance this year. And thanks most of all to you. If you're listening, it means that you care enough about Ground Up Governance or about me or both to be a paid subscriber. It really is a humbling and energizing experience to know that you're tuning in. I hope you've learned something over the past few months, and I can't wait to keep the Ground Up Governance ball rolling in 2023. Thanks again for listening. 